What's up, Fight Fan? You are listening to MMA Daily, the podcast where we bring you the latest in the world of mixed martial arts. I'm Gabriel. You can find me on social media at Double G on TV. It is Friday, August 16, 2019, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Natalie Zamudio. Hello, Double G. Happy day before UFC 241. Can't wait. I'm excited. I am, too. I am out here on location in Anaheim. It is very exciting. There's a lot going on. And it's really, um, as it gets closer, I think that people are really getting hyped up for these top three uh, fights on the card. And um, we'll be talking a lot about that. But we have a lot to go over before we get into the good stuff. So let's get right into it. I know you were very happy after Saturday. Valentina Shevchenko defeats Liz Carmouche. She just proves what we already know. She is arguably one of the top women in MMA. You could argue that she is number two to only Amanda Nunes. What were your thoughts on her performance? Yeah, very interesting fight. But, but uh, you know, number two to Amanda Nunes, I will say, uh, you know, some folks out there still think she did beat her in that second fight, so it doesn't matter though. She doesn't have the belt at 135. But anyway, um, it was a strange strategy and a strange performance by Liz Carmouche. At some point, I think it would have made sense for her to abandon what I feel was an ineffective strategy and just kind of go in for the kill. But she never pulled the trigger. She never, she never abandoned the game plan to her deficit. Uh, I still enjoyed the fight because from the Shevchenko perspective, it was cool to see um, just her brain working out how to uh, develop an offense against Liz. You know, she studied her. She found opportunities to attack. You know, we know she's a counter-striker, but she had to go forward a little more because otherwise nothing else was going to happen. She took her down. She held her down. I mean, it was, you know, it was good stuff from, from Shevchenko. And uh, it's a little frustrating coming off of the head kick, Kale, just guy. But, you know, just guy's coming forward, so she makes it easier for Shevchenko to knock her out. Liz Carmouche had, you know, she kept her distance almost like too well. Not almost, I mean, it was too well. She was staying really far away. She had some good, like, lateral movement, but then she wouldn't do anything with it. Like, she would close the distance by stepping out to her right or her left, and she was right there, and she still wouldn't throw punches. She couldn't do anything on the ground. Very, very strange. Um, you know, the ground aspect was my biggest concern of the fight for Shevchenko, but uh, she proved that she is a complete MMA fighter, as she always says. And um, who's next? I don't know. Jeepers. Okay, Susie Q. <laughs> no, but um, I always love when you say that. i got to be honest. Um, <laughs> I completely agree with all the Jeepers. Um, I completely agree with your analysis. I think that um, what it came down to is I really don't think Liz felt like she had an answer for the striking. I feel like that's just a testament to how good Shevchenko is. And um, look, you're always looking for the openings, right, in the striking. That's the whole point of this game. When you are as technically sound as Shevchenko, that is a very hard thing to do. And I think that at the end of the day, Liz, very strong, very tough, very well-prepared fighter. I think at the end of the day, the openings she was looking for just weren't there. I feel like every time she wanted to do something, you know, Shevchenko is keeping a good output. She's defending well. Liz was doing well with that kick, but if I'm being honest, 
Shevchenko ate it well for five rounds, and obviously there were those key moments. Liz tries to take her down, doesn't work, or Shevchenko reverses, and she has some very emphatic takedowns. Um, the spinning back, back fist, uh, it was um, in the, late in the fight, knocked her down. She had, like, the right hand or the left hand that knocked her down. And that's just a testament to how good she was. She hit her spot, Liz. Tough girl didn't go away, but I think at the end of the day, she just did not have an answer for the comprehensive game of Shevchenko. And, um, you know, to her credit, uh, Liz is probably the strongest girl physically, I thought, outside of Valentina. And Valentina had that very emphatic um, takedown. She got the underhooks, really just threw Liz around. And I was like, that that was kind of one of her biggest strengths going into it. And Valentina just made it a non-factor. So very comprehensive win. Like you said, not the head kick knockout we were looking for, but um, that's a testament to Liz defending well, which is part of the game. But I think she just did not have the necessary weapons to threaten Shevchenko, and we saw that. Now, going forward, there is – oh, go ahead. No, I was just – I'm agreeing with you, and – and yeah, the uh, the body lock takedown was very impressive uh, of Shevchenko because, as you say, yeah, uh, the most muscular uh, fighter in 125 female division, Liz Carmouche, it was very threatening, you know, on paper. But nah, man, in person, Shevchenko is still the stronger fighter. So very, very cool to see. Sorry, man, go for it. Oh, no. Well, in terms of what's next, that's interesting because you asked me on Friday, I would say Caitlin Chikagian all day. She just beat uh, Joanne Calderwood. She, the only loss in, at 125 was Jessica I in a title eliminator. So I really felt like she had kind of set herself up. We'd heard that she'd been offered the um, Shevchenko fight. And I think the reports uh, that are coming out is that she is getting married in September. So she just you know, if you want to get ready and enjoy a bit of vacation after fighting in June, I get that. But um, uh, they just booked Chukagian for Jennifer Maya in New York. Caitlin is from uh, New Jersey, so or, you know, trains out of New Jersey with Frankie Edgar, so I get that. But then you have the interesting uh, factor now. That's a very big fight, but you also have Andrea Lee and um, Joanne Calderwood, coming up next month in Abu Dhabi. Also, Jennifer Maya, while she's very hyped up coming off of Invicta, she did lose pretty one-sidedly to Liz Carmouche. So I guess the factor is, who is the top contender? I would argue that it comes down to performance. Um, But people will know, I've been talking about Andrea Lee for a while. I think that her standing with Shevchenko could be a really fun fight. And I think that you can't count her out, even though... Chukagin is the one with the win over Joanne Calderwood already. So it's a lot of weird MMA math going on right now. So talk to me about what's going on. Yeah, I like actually like uh, KGB Lee. Uh, I think that would be very interesting. Uh, as far as styles, they're Ken and Ryu, right? Um, just Shevchenko, yeah. I would say, still the superior striker. But it could be interesting. I like that. I like that better than Caitlin Chukagian um, just for, again, again for for the style, but as far as um, you know, more complete fighter, maybe probably Chukagian would 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 uh, surpass Angela Lee. But um, I mean, at this point, it's just like whoever's whoever's free, you know, whoever has the opening in their schedule, who Shevchenko is going to fight. So 
We shall see. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that the depending on what Shevchenko wants, the timing works out far better for um, uh, KGB or Calderwood. I think, you know, once again, though, it's that MMA math. It's like, how are you... Like, if Chukagin's already beaten Calderwood, how are you going to give it to Andrea Lee if Chukagin wins in November? But once again, the timing. And that's a long time. You know, early September to mid-November, you know, early November, that's a lot long wait, especially if you're thinking that um, Shevchenko would come back in, like, maybe December to try to get in one more before the calendar year closes. So all of that, you know, just makes it, something to watch and uh what can i say i guess we'll see but yeah those are the two that really stand out i think that people are waiting to see uh, you know who's more impressive chukagin or andrea lee moving on there was a lot going on this one a little different but i think it is a positive thing the california state athletic commission saying that they are not going to unless they have um, a very big uh, change in the, sorry, not change, but they get a lot of um, documentation from, a, you know, a doctor and everything to say that she is good to fight at 135. This, obviously, everyone always talks about you want to have a better, safe weight cut. What were your thoughts on this news? It makes sense to me that, you know, someone's looking into this for Aspen Lab because she looked terrible on the scale. Uh, for her last fight. I, I do wonder if the UFC had expressed any interest in helping her prior to CSAC stepping in because, as I said, she looked terrible. It, it, this just opens up the, the larger, you know, um, discussion about fighters cutting weight, period. It just doesn't make sense for them to destroy their bodies. Like, these are elite, elite athletes, and so it's like, can you imagine Steph Curry or Serena Williams depleting themselves, cutting all kinds of weight just to hit the mark to compete on game day. Like, that would be ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's 100% counterintuitive. Sabot- like, they're literally sabotaging their body in order to fight. And it's the complete opposite of optimization, which is, which is what they're working towards in, a, in their training camp, right? Optimizing their mind, their body, their skill sets, their speed. They're doing all of this. And then they, like, undo all this progress to some to some degree, by having to cut all this weight, it's so strange, and it's like never going to change, probably, right? Uh, but but it's good that that the commission is stepping in because someone has to be doing something for the fighters. Again, hopefully the UFC was concerned as well, and they didn't just jump in after CSAC uh, raised the red flag, but. It's a serious issue that I don't know. I don't know what the answer is for for the sport. You know, I mean, you look at one championship and they do like their multiple weigh-ins, like Friday and Saturday, and you have to show that you're actually, you know, your body's fine and you're not over dehydrated between days. And I'm like, that helps. But then you also look at what happened with Eddie Alvarez, and it's like you're talking about a 155er who's now fighting at 170. He's not really cut out for it, but then again, you know, after rehydration. So I guess you've got to almost look at it a little more like what is the number? And I think that that's just something that comes with research. 
Short term, I like this for Aston Ladd. If you ask me, a lot more guys should have to provide documentation before they weigh in at a certain weight class. So I like that this is happening. I, you know, I hope that she gets the info. That way she can perform better. But overall, I think that this is just a good sign because I think that this is the kind of thing that's like, hey, we are looking out for safety. And if you're Aston, I think it's good that they're giving her attention because she's a young prospect. She's got a lot of fight left in her. She's got a long career ahead of her. Um, to know that she's going to be fighting optimally and you're looking out for her, you know, I would ho- my hope is that she's not taking it like, oh, they're trying to make an example. I really do think that there's a lot of upside to being part of it, and I hope that it's treated like that for her. Yeah, I mean, uh, the more attention lady, on this, the better. I really think that uh, Russell Westbrook could weigh in every day before a game. That dude, you know, if you tell him you got to weigh in, he'll be like, I don't care. I'll do it and I'll play. You know. <laughs> yeah. Real quick, well. I forgot. What do you think about the picture that Shevchenko put? Henry Cejudo saying all that and um, Shevchenko pulling out that hunting rifle for the gold medalist. Uh, you know, don't mess around with Shevchenko. Uh, that's what I first, that was my initial thought. It's like, when I saw her talking on Ariel Hawani's show, and she was like, be careful what you wish, uh, what you wish for, but she just said, be careful what you wish. Uh, I was looking at her eyes, and I'm like, she means it. She will fight this man. <laughs> she probably wouldn't win. You know, there's, we're, men and women are, you know, biologically, anatomically, structurally different. Power is, is in different places. You don't need me to explain all this. She probably wouldn't win, and it would not be fun to watch. But she's serious. I bet, you know, I bet she's wrestled a bear or two in her day just like Khabib. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like Shevchenko, you know, would lose a split decision. I think it would be a competitive fight. Um, I thought the, the funniest one in the comments was, it's like Shevchenko needs to point the gun down. Henry Cejudo's not that tall. <laughs> That's funny. I thought that was funny. I thought that was good. <laughs> Moving on, some other news going on in our lovely MMA world. The return of one of the most interesting contenders in MMA, Zabit Magomed Sharapov, taking on Kelvin Qatar at UFC Boston. They are set to be the co-main event to Chris Weidman and Dominic Reyes. Everyone knows the beat. Four UFC fights. Fought Jeremy Stevens in March. Calvin Qatar, 20-3, and 4-1 record, and he just took out former title challenger Ricardo Lamas in June. Um, I think that the biggest thing I am getting out of this matchup is that they feel like they want to test the beat a little bit more. And furthermore, I think a lot of the big names at featherweight are just already booked. You wanted Yair for Mexico. Brian Ortega isn't there. And so you need to give the beat the next best thing, and that's a up-and-coming guy in Calvin. What are your thoughts on the matchup? Yeah, I, I was surprised because of the, the earlier rumors about his bigger, you know, higher-ranked opponents. And, uh, but, hey, you know, he is still, like, I guess I think about his fight with Jeremy Stevens, and it was a good fight, but it wasn't, so spectacular that I'm thinking, oh, man, I want to see Zabit fighting, you know, for the belt soon. It'll come. His day will come. But it didn't blow me away enough to to to, to make a push. So it, it kind of makes sense. They, they did their best. They were trying to give him an exciting matchup. And this still is that. Um, 
but yeah, if there's uh, if the bigger names aren't ready, aren't available, then just got to keep the, the wheel in motion. I bet he just wants to fight again, you know, March. Is, I don't know if he was injured or what, but March to October is, you know, it's a good amount of time. I suspect he would have wanted to fight sooner if there was no issue. So I think it probably comes down to him just wanting to fight, and this is, this is what's open. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, what I'm thinking probably came down to was that uh, the Russia, going over to Russia, which surprised me because I thought he was a no-brainer for that card, but I'm assuming he just wanted to fight a little bit earlier. And even though it's only about a one-month difference, he hasn't fought since March. At a certain point, you do got to eat, right? So that surprised me. Obviously, Calvin, it feels like a step down from Jeremy Stevens in terms of name recognition. That being said, you know, this is another tough guy. And even though he doesn't have the hype of a Zabit um, and some other guys, you know, this is exactly how they make their name. They fight these fights, and that sets you up for the Jose Aldo's, the Max Holloway's, the Brian Ortega's, the, you know, Alex Volkanovsky's of the division. Alex Volkanovsky, no one was really talking about um, outside of the bubble until he fought um, Chad Mendes last year. This is kind of how it works, you know, and Chad Mendes wasn't exactly number one contender status yet. So I think that this is a key fight. I think that it's a good time for Zabit to showcase what he can do. Um, I love his game. A lot of people do. He seems to have every move in the book, and his striking is just ridiculous. But I think that this is a good time to showcase, like, hey, you are ready for the names that people recognize. And I think that he's got a tough test to do it. And I think that if you're Calvin, big chance to step up and break into the conversation yourself. Yeah, that's well said. Moving on, we have had our appetizer with Valentina. We have had the side salad with Aspen Ladd and Zabit. It is time for the main course. Are you hungry, Natalie Zamudio? I'm starving, as always. What time Let's get started then. Let's go. Well, hey, we're gonna have, we're gonna talk about probably the two biggest pieces of beef in the middleweight division. Yo <laughs> Romero, Paulo Costa. Um, I asked Paulo Costa yesterday for the record who has more muscles, and he said I do over Yo Romero. And I was like, this is kind of. I just can't wait to see them weigh in officially and just get in the cage with each other. It's gonna be ridiculous, stylistically. Very different, but at the end of the day, we know what the big weapons are. They are very explosive. When they're in the first round and they're fresh, the power they're going to be throwing is ridiculous. How do you see this fight going down? It's, uh, it's going to be very exciting. A feast for the eyes, uh, for me anyway. Yeah, who has more <laughs> muscles is a great question. I think it is Costa, especially uh, when you look at the shoulders. He has way bigger shoulders, but these guys are, it's just like genetic superiority, you know, like insane physique. I was watching Yoel Romero um, versus uh, Luke Rockhold, and, you know, he, uh, I think he was just less afraid of whatever Luke had to offer. He was moving forward a little bit, throwing punches. They were kind of going back and forth. Um, and then I watched, and then, of course, he finished them with that, like, really vicious uh, it was like a left hook that dropped him in that really vicious uppercut when he was already planted on the on the floor there. But uh, 
Romero versus Whitaker too. That was very interesting because the same year, just later down the line, and Romero, as you, if you remember, at the beginning of the fight, had that defensive posture for like the first two rounds. He just kept his hands up, and he was just kind of feeling it out. I think we'll see that with with Costa as well. I think Romero's gonna gonna keep those hands up. He's gonna feel less free to just start throwing offense. And Costa's a little bit I wouldn't call him a wild man, but he goes forward. He's he's not really waiting to figure you out. He's just gonna start punching. So how I see this going, I actually think Costa might win this one. Uh we got a three rounder, right? So I think he will finish I think he'll finish Romero by the third round. Maybe the second, but I think he's gonna get a TKO. He's not gonna knock him out cold, but he'll just wear him down, he'll brutalize him enough. And, uh, you know, look, Romero, he may wait, and so so that's good because his last two fights he didn't. Um, but still, you know, I don't know how depleted. Uh, you saw both of them. Who looked, uh, did either of them look depleted on the scale today? Uh, no, Costa looked like he was ready to, you know, eat half the reporters for breakfast. He just looks like he can go through that much food. Romero was the last one to weigh in. It was a little more stressful, but he weighed in one attempt, 184 and a half. So I think that he just needed that little bit of extra time. But um, I'd say Costa looked a little healthier. I feel like Romero looked like he had drained himself a little more. Yeah, so, you know, I I asked because I just wonder if that's going to play any any, any, uh, play at all into the performance tomorrow. But even when Romero doesn't make weight, he still shows up. He still performs well. So I suspect it wouldn't. But uh, it's a lot of muscle for both of these guys to be slinging. And, uh, you know, someone, something's got to give. Someone's, gotta, someone's lactic acid threshold has got to be met first. I think it's going to be Romero. I think Paulo Acosta is going to outlast him and then finish him with punches. How do you see this going down, man? You know what? I've got to start by being Captain Obvious. Um, Romero's wrestling is obviously a big factor, but let's be honest. If he's throwing that those haymakers like he did against Rockhold and anybody, Costa could go down easily, and that's a wrap. And we talk, you know, all this talk about cardio and wrestling and all that goes out the window. Um, that being said, I feel like that's the X factor: is that if Costa wants to replicate the Whitaker strategy, he's got to throw a lot more kicks than we usually see him do. Um, I think that Romero is aware of that. I think that Romero is ready to kind of stick and move and find his spots a little bit. I'm not saying he's about to get on the bicycle for 15 minutes, but I do think that he's going to be looking to stay on the outside, force Costa to overcommit to throwing some punches, and then he's going to take him down. Um, The thing about Romero, he's such an awkward guy. He's very explosive, very powerful, but... When you expect him to wrestle, he ends up staying on the feet a lot. Part of that is because guys like Robert Whitaker move and keep him uh, on defensive with kicks. But then also, you know, you expect him to get tired. But most of his knockouts, if you look at his record, happen later in the fight. So it's a weird, he's a weird guy to prepare for in that way because the common sense is take him into deep water. He knocks everybody out when he's in deep water. So all that aside, I think stylistically, you assume Romero has a lot more weapons. I think that Paolo's youthfulness and aggressiveness is going to be a big factor. Quite bluntly, I do think that he will find the openings that he needs to, 
to hurt Romero early, and I think that he is prepared to brawl and brawl a little bit. I do think he's going to defend the first takedown, the first shot. I do think that he's going to block and get out of the way of the big shot Romero early, and I think he's going to find the counter and do the damage. So I have Costa late in the first round catching him. I think that it's going to be that fight. And I'm going to be honest, it is twofold because I believe going into the second round with these two men, there's a very high chance they're going to start gassing out by that time because they're throwing so much heavy leather. Yeah, it's going to be like a it's it's very possible that the first round will be like a collision between, you know, two what are the like two moose in the forest or something, you know, mating season. <laughs> they're just going to start going at each other, you know, horn like to horn. Two buffalo. So, yeah, two buffalo. Any of those terrifying, you know, large mammals. Uh and that's that's what we're looking at here. So, it's just like it's just straight up exciting because because there's so many options based on what we know about both of these fighters based on the you know the element uh, of like the, the physique and what that what that brings to the story who's going to get tired first all this stuff there's so many different parameters here that can be explored and geez I don't know man it's going to be pretty it's going to be exciting but I, I'm still sticking with Costa by the third but I like your option too because that would be way more exciting. <laughs> Jeepers. Jeepers indeed. <laughs> All right, moving on to the co-main event, Anthony Pettis and Nate Diaz. Um, he tells us his CBD. I don't know if I believed him, but okay, at the open workouts this week. <laughs> um, the biggest thing about it is that I do expect Nate Diaz to Nate Diaz, and what I mean by that is I expect him win or lose, getting hurt, being effective, being non-effective. He's going to talk his trash. He's going to be tough to put away, and he is going to keep trying to throw with bad intention. That being said, everything about me says that Anthony Pettis at 170 has so many more weapons, going to be fresher, going to be dangerous. The big key to me is that Pettis needs to use the kicks, and he needs to stay out of boxing range. He absolutely needs to use... Um, more of his weapons, whether it's takedowns, whether it's kicks, because if he finds himself getting into these, you know, just trying to punch with Nate at his range and Nate's coming forward, that does not favor Pettis. Pettis needs to make sure he doesn't get lured into that fight. Diaz is a tough guy, but I do think that at the end of the day, you know, Nate, without a three-year layoff, is, has problems with uh, Anthony Pettis, and I think that that's just going to be the key to it. Yeah, that's 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 right on. Uh, Pettis, I I see him winning too. As far as his weapons, all his 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 toolbox, like it's just far superior. He looks so switched on just in the in the you know the hype, the promotional videos, embedded and interviews that he's doing. And you see him training; he just looks so sharp. His body looks great, and and uh, that makes me worry for Nate Diaz. But then, as you pointed out at the beginning, Nate Diaz is Nate Diaz, and like. He's going to trash talk. He's probably going to flip the bird. Like, I'm sure there's some kind of betting line about how, how soon uh, Nate Diaz flips Anthony Pettis the bird in the fight. Um, and and he can't be put away. I was looking at his record, like, see, you know, was he ever knocked out? All of his losses are by decision, except there's a Josh Thompson loss in 2013. TKO, I guess. It says head kick and punches round two. Otherwise, all his losses are by decision. So, And we've seen him take 
Conor McGregor's hardest shots and get dropped, but not not phased, not you know, definitely not um, knocked out. So, what of Pettis could knock out Nate Diaz? I mean, probably something as as crazy as the Superman punch off the cage that put put uh, Wonder Boy out because Wonder Boy was totally winning that fight. He was outworking him, punching him. His face was all bloody. Pettis' face was all bloody. The one thing I can guarantee is we're going to see a lot of blood. Nate Diaz bleeds easily. Pettis kind of does a little bit too, especially because he gets hit in the nose. If he gets hit in the nose, and I, I suspect Diaz is going to find a home for his long, rangy arm. So we'll see a lot of blood, but I still think Pettis gets it done. I don't think he's going to finish him, but I think he'll outpoint him. I think it's Pettis by decision. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think that um, Diaz doesn't go away quietly. I do think you need that Tony Ferguson kind of power to put away Nate. You need that one-shot Tyron Woodley power to, you know, put him away. I think that most lightweights, you know, he's just a durable guy to his credit. Um, so all of that, you know, it, it gets very tough. Um, but I do think that Nate's weapons, the way he fights, you know, he's tough, great jiu-jitsu, but I also don't think that um, – Pettis is a slouch on the ground, so even if he chooses to grapple a little bit, I can't say that Nate's just going to tie him up and take him out quickly that way. So I think it makes it a very interesting fight, for sure. Moving on, uh, oh, for my prediction, yeah, Pettis by decision. I don't know if I said it already. But um, going on to the main event, the main course of the night, the rematch, Daniel Cormier, Kipe Miocic, number two. Both of these guys are lean. They're both like 10 pounds lighter than they were for the first fight. DC, 236. Kipe, 230 pounds. The guy just looks shredded. Um, Natalie, I think the thing about this fight is after the first fight, who actually made a lot of changes? Or is there even anything that they can do differently? And I don't know if there's an easy answer to that. The only thing I can think of is that if you're DC, you're going in more confident. I think that he has more weapons to use this time because he didn't really use his wrestling. This time he can, and he could really add a wrinkle that Stipe doesn't feel he's seen. If you're Stipe, I think that you are more committed than ever to keeping it at mid-range. You're not going to try to walk him down as much as you did before, and I think that that's going to be the key. Um, but I will say my prediction for last. I want ladies to go first. Miss Natalie, how do you see the rematch going down? Oh, this one makes me nervous. You know, I'm I like both of these guys. I'm probably rooting for DC, especially with you know the legacy on the line. I think Stipe still has more career left in him, and DC, of course, has been talking about retirement for like two years already. This is interesting. You know, DC was very um, open about what he saw as soon as he he beat Miocic like in the post fight interview he was just very open he was like I saw him doing this um, you know he was I was just filling him out I we noticed him and that he leaves his hands down after the clinch you know so I I, I was ready for that uh, so on and so on I think there's more material for Miocic to study to prepare with than than DC has have to prepare for Miocic. So I think Miocic is going to come in with a better game plan than DC will. But it seems pretty clear that DC and his team, they're not underestimating that. Uh, they're not underestimating Miocic. They're expecting him to come out guns a-blazing. I am too. Miocic has a lot, a lot to, 
to um, for himself a lot to prove. He wants that belt back badly, and uh, he resents DC's um, comments about or criticisms about you know staying on the sidelines, uh, waiting for the rematch. I think that's silly. I mean, it, it makes sense. If I'm DC, I would have said the same thing. But um, this one's hard to predict. So, so the first fight, Stipe was landing pretty pretty well. He was landing with uh, landing punches. DC was flipping. Nothing was really hurting him. But you could see in DC's eyes, every time Stipe landed a punch, he looked almost like frustrated or kind of just like, well, all right, you got that one. But it didn't, it didn't hurt me. He was making this kind of funny face. Then he found his opening, and boom, we all know what happened. Um, but but this time, yeah, you mentioned the wrestling, and I wonder how soon he'll use the wrestling. But what always worries me about DC is that vulnerability that John Jones capitalized on, which is that deep head dip that he does, you know, to the left. Uh, he, uh, Jones kicked him in the head, and that was it. It's always been there. I'm surprised that no one else has taken advantage of it. But I think Stipe is going to be uh, coming uh looking to respond to DC's takedowns with, with knees and shin. So that's, gonna, that's something I'm expecting also on the Miocic side, but also patience. And uh, I still think DC is going to finish this one, even though I've been hem-hawing through this whole, uh, this whole um, analysis. I still think it's going to be DC. I'm thinking second round TKO, which is early, I know but that's, that's what my feeling is. But it still makes me nervous because Stipe is coming in hot. He's coming in hot, man. He is. You know what? It's just very tough, um, and I think that that's what makes this fight very interesting. Um, I feel like a lot of people have been turned off by Stipe, right? I mean, I said it. I feel like he got really lucky. I feel like he held out for the rematch and... You know, I think a, a question I haven't heard him answer, but, like, you know, if the DC rematch hadn't happened, how much longer was this going to go on? And I think that the fact that that's such a big question, it's like, you know, you kind of don't feel like he's the same guy who was going through Overeem and JDS and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, DC, you know, at 40, he's postponing his retirement just because he wants to kick some butt again. I think that that, you know, makes it very easy to kind of write off Stipe. I think he's tough. I think he's ready. He's motivated. I think that at the end of the day, he wants this more than anybody even realizes. That being said, I think that stylistically, DC carries himself differently. That doesn't mean he's any less of a beast in there and what he tries to do. I'm with you. I think that it's going to be Daniel Cormier. I think it could go a little bit longer. I think that if it doesn't end in like the fourth, third or fourth, then it's going to decision. But I don't think it's going to be early. I think that Stipe is going to hang with them for quite a while, but I think at the end of the day, it's DC's world for a reason. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And uh, still nervous, but I agree. I think think that um, of the three fights that we just covered, that one will probably be the have the best finish, even though we got yep. Costa and Romero. Because part of, part of the Costa and Romero thing that worries me is that they're just going to kind of be like, either they're going to gas out and then no one's going to have any juice left. But that's unlikely, but it's possible. Or they're just going to kind of be like dancing around each other, feeling each other out. So I mm-hmm. think the most uh, explosive uh, finish will come from this main event. And, uh, yeah, 
I'm uh, like I said, rooting for DC, but I, I wouldn't mind if they win win either. Like he's a he's a he's a sweet, charming, blue collar man. You know, sweet outside. Obviously, in the ring, he's a killer. And I don't know if you you read that uh, ESPN you know piece that Mark Monday did. Uh, it was pretty pretty cool. The 24 hours he spent with him at the firehouse, like just a humble dude, and and uh, he cares more about being a firefighter. You know, like this this. This championship means a great deal to him, but at the end of the day, like he identifies as a firefighter. So uh, that that that's got a uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing, right? When you're when you're going in there for the for the for the championship, right? You want to go in Absolutely. there and be like, I'm a fighter. I don't know. Uh, I think that it's good. I think that that's that's part of what makes him perform better is that maybe he takes that pressure off of himself, and I think that that's once again a key factor is that. He's a different guy, and that's not a bad thing, not by any means at all. But, yeah, it is going to be interesting. We are going to see how this all plays out. But, Natalie, next week we have a UFC break, the first time in about 10 weeks, if I'm not mistaken. There is Bellator, so they have the Mitrion Karatanov, I believe, rematch going on. A few fights there, Alejandro Lara coming back, one of our favorites. So I am very excited. Excited for that one. I will be reporting live from Anaheim with all of the action, so I'll be giving you all the inside scoop next week. Natalie, where can fans talk to you about everything going on in this uh, fight weekend? I am at uh, Natalie Zamudio underscore on, at Twitter and straightpunch.com or the, uh, the MMA website. Awesome. And guys, remember you can find me all the time at Double G on TV. Just spell out the word double. And we'll be back next week.